Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, we've got a lot of work to do, so if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We are, as we're finishing up summer here, in kind of a time where we are departing from our regular practice which is to preach through books of the Bible. And we're taking some time here before we start a new series of messages, which we will when we move into a new building, and we're going to start a series on 1 Corinthians. We're taking some time to preach some individual messages and kind of do some uh, teaching on some things that we just want to kind of uh, strengthen and give some better understanding to as a church. And so today we're going to speak about the significance and meaning behind communion. And it is our custom here at Crosspoint to, on the first Sunday of every month, to receive communion together as a body of believers. And so we're going to talk about the significance of communion today. Again, this is a little bit of a detour from our regular practice to speak expositionally, preach expositionally, which means that you're working your way through a passage and that the point of the passage is the point of the message. Today we're kind of coming to the Bible with a thought about what communion means and kind of looking at the message of the scriptures, specifically the New Testament about communion. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start in Matthew 26, and then we're going to be all over the New Testament. And so if you have really quick thumbs, you can flip around with me. We'll have most of the scriptures that I reference on the screen. And if you just kind of want to sit back and relax and take notes that hit you in particular... Rather than worrying about all the scriptures, all of the notes will be on the internet on our resources page, hopefully by tomorrow afternoon. Well, maybe not without our computers hooked up, but they'll be up on the internet um, sometime soon. So let's go in Matthew chapter 26. As you're finding that, have you ever considered really how unpragmatic Christianity is? And what I mean by unpragmatic is seemingly like countercultural, not particularly helpful for in the moment. It's not something that everybody else is doing. It doesn't sort of one step leads to another. And what I mean by that is that Christianity is countercultural, that it seems to go directly against the wisdom of this world. In fact, that's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1. God says that he's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks when we start our message in 1 Corinthians. But have you ever noticed really how countercultural the two things that we do principally as a church in the New Testament are? The two, we call them ordinances that Jesus instituted. Water baptism, which signifies our entrance into the community of faith. Think about that for a moment. We are dunking ourselves in a tub of water, coming up out of that water, clapping and celebrating and praising God. We're all comfortable with that, but can we step back for just a moment and say that is different? And then to signify our continuance in the body of Christ, we gather together depending on our church tradition, whether it be weekly or monthly or maybe quarterly, we gather together to chew on little tiny bits of bread and drink little cups of juice or wine and we call it a meal to signify the death of the one that we call God. 
again, can we just step back from the table of rationality here and say that's a little peculiar. The two things that Jesus, the God-man himself, told us to do were dunk yourself in water as a symbol of your entrance into the community of faith and then as a symbol of your continuance in that community have bread and little cups of juice together. Well, he didn't say little cups, but that's kind of the way it's worked out for us in our larger gatherings. <laughs> this is countercultural. And what we're going to talk about today is the essence of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a community together for Jesus. Well, let me read and let me pray and then let's. Let's dive into this. Before I read, actually, let me give you just a little background. We're at the end of Matthew's gospel, and we're at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and his life on earth. He's spent three years ministering and performing miracles, calling to himself disciples, and has done all manner of miracles. In fact, the gospel of John says that if we were to record all of them, that there wouldn't be enough room in the world for all the books that it would take to write about all the things that Jesus did, not just the things that are recorded in the Gospels, but all the things that Jesus did. And so now Jesus is willingly preparing to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of all that would repent and believe in him and is approaching this final week of his life. And as was his custom as a Jewish man with his Jewish disciples, is preparing to receive the Passover meal. And this is from the Old Testament when God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, was in captivity in Egypt. They were freed from their captivity by God through the leadership of Moses and the plagues. And there in Exodus 12, I believe it is, there's this final and tenth plague that sort of breaks the back of Pharaoh where God tells them that you should, he tells Moses to tell his people that you should kill a spotless lamb and that you should brush the blood of this lamb on the doorposts of your, of your houses, and that when I come over those houses, literally the Lord himself, the angel of the Lord, when I come over those houses, I will pass over that house because I know that that house is covered by the sacrifice. And so from that time, the Jews have, have remembered this moment of salvation from Egyptian captivity by by celebrating the Passover meal, which is what Jesus is doing with his disciples, which, oh, by the way, is a foreshadowance, is a symbol of what Jesus would do for his people once and for all by allowing himself to be slaughtered as the perfect Passover lamb so that the judgment of God would pass over us and cover our sins. And now he's gathered with his disciples who don't quite see that big picture yet, and he's eating this meal with them. And he says in Matthew, the writer Matthew says in Matthew 26, verse 20, chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all, for this, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you 
in my Father's kingdom. Today we're going to talk about communion, and I'm going to give you seven reasons or seven meanings of what we are about to do together as a church family. This is not a comprehensive or exhaustive teaching in all the issues surrounding communion or even the issues that communion signifies. I think it's my specific meditation on the meaning of what we are doing here, reflecting on and celebrating together as Christians as we come together to have communion. So there's no earth-shattering truths here. There's nothing new, hopefully, here for you if you've been a Christian for a while. So if you've been a Christian, I hope that today as we dwell on these meanings, these seven meanings of communion, again, that are not exhaustive, that your heart will be stirred with affection for Jesus. If you are not yet a Christian, you either know you are not a Christian or you don't know that you are yet not yet a Christian and you think you are. For you, friend, I pray that God would give you illumination and that the Holy Spirit would do what I cannot do. Look, I can't make you a Christian. One of my theological heroes, Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist pastor back in the 1800s in London, said that I can't make a man a Christian any more than you can teach a tiger to be a vegetarian. It has to be a work of God. I pray that as these words are read from the scriptures and as we meditate on them, that the Spirit of God would lay hold of your heart and claim you for Christ and let you see and savor him, and cause you to be born again and repent and trust in Jesus. Well, let's pray before we speak on these things. Lord, thank you for uh, your word today that is completely true. It is sufficient for us, for all things that pertain to life and godliness. Lord, at times it's hard for us to understand, but that is a commentary on us and our sinfulness and our distance from you because of our rebellion not a commentary on the clarity of your revelation to us. So God, would you help us now by your Holy Spirit to draw near to you through these words and through my meditations and thoughts. And would you, God, would you let the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, stand forth clearly from the written word of God so that Christians in this room, so that our hearts would be stirred towards worship and love, and affection, and thereby make us more attractive to a world that needs Christ. God, would you do that? Would you rouse our tired religious hearts into love and adoration and worship? And Lord, for those that are in this room who are not yet born again, whether they know it or not, God, would you break through the hardness human rebellion, would you bring life to their heart so that they would see Jesus, trust in him, and turn to him. God, I thank you ultimately for this time together. May Jesus be glorified and may your people find joy in your name. Amen. Seven reasons, seven meanings of communion. The first is that in communion, we remember Jesus' death in our place for our sins. I think this is the first and primary meaning of communion. We remember Jesus' death in our place for our sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll get to that. We'll read large portions of that in just a moment. 
But as the Apostle Paul is several decades after this Last Supper where Jesus is instituting this here, is now then teaching the Corinthian church how they should do this, he tells them specifically that they should remember, they should remember this. And Jesus himself says, remember me whenever you do this. At the heart of Christianity is what God has done to solve the problem of human sin and rebellion. Mankind has fallen and in rebellion against God, and the consequences of our rebellion has left us not just merely diminished, but dead. And so while mankind has changed because of his sin, God did not. He remains holy and just and good. And so as a response to our rebellion and his justice, he sends God, the man, Jesus, in the flesh to live a perfect life for us, to die on the cross in our place as a substitute on the cross. And two things happen here in Jesus' death that we need to remember as we're receiving this, this meal together. There are two things that happen. First is that our sins, this is very clear in the scriptures, our sins, all of us. I don't think I have to take any time to convince us that we are sinful in here, that we're fallen that our sins are transferred to Christ. He bears the sin of his people. This is what the Old Testament says, looking forward to this moment from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses four through six. This is what he says. Centuries before the cross, the prophet says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, listen to this last sentence, and the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So as we come together to receive this meal, and as we receive these little broken pieces of bread and these little cups of juice signifying the broken body and spilled blood of God himself, We are remembering that God took on himself in the form of his son Jesus' life here on earth, the punishment, our sins, that literally Jesus became sin for us. It was imputed to him. He was completely guiltless, but he received it. He took it upon himself, and he then absorbs our punishment completely. This is a word that we throw out here a lot at Crosspoint, propitiation. And and it is a word that means in the New Testament that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice of God for our sins, absorbs the wrath of God completely for us. The best thing I can liken it to for our sort of modern infomercial addicted minds is the the ShamWow guy. You know that? That rag? I don't think it, it can't work nearly as good. He like takes a liter of coke and he pours it out on the table and he gets this little rag it's about the size of a handkerchief and he throws it on there and all of a sudden it's gone and you're like what in the world i don't think it works that well i know we have some people who like infomercials that buy all this stuff on infomercials and i have a sister down here in the front row who i've heard buys everything on infomercials and she is giving testimony right now that it doesn't quite work like it should <laughs> all right <laughs> thank you very much But here's the good news is that imagine if it really did work, if the ShamWow rag absorbed all of the Coke or cranapple juice or spilled milk with little flakes of Captain Crunch on top of it on your table. Imagine that. If it really could do that. Well, that's what Jesus on the cross does 
for the sins, not of everybody, but for all those that will repent and believe and trust in Jesus. The consequences of that are enormous. It means that there's not a little bit left for us to atone for. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus takes it all, absorbs it, and in fact reflects that judgment of God and wrath of God and anger of God against human rebellion into favor. That is spectacular. And so as we come to eat these little chips of bread and these little cups of juice, our hearts should swell with worship because we are remembering the day that God absorbed his wrath against us for us, the very thing that we needed but could not do ourselves. That is spectacular. That's spectacular. And if you were a little more pepped up today, you would say, right on, right on, right on. But maybe next time. And so that's the first thing that happens there on the cross is that our sin is imputed to Jesus. And then secondly, as Martin Luther, the great reformer says, he calls it the great exchange. His righteousness, Jesus's righteousness is given to us there in that moment. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to actually be sin for us. That's what we just talked about. Think about that for a second. Jesus on the cross literally becomes the thief, the murderer. He literally takes on the sin of the pornographer, the child molester, the tax evader, terrorist, the adulterer, the gossiper. He literally takes that sin. He, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the first part we just talked about. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so the first thing we are doing here as we remember this meal is we are remembering Jesus' death in our place for our sins. Two things are happening there. Number one, our sins are imputed on Jesus. Two, his righteousness is given to us. Again, this is not universal. This is not for everybody. You don't just get this because you're hearing this. It is only transferred the sins of those who are forgiven, and then the righteousness that Jesus gives is only transferred. That great exchange only happens for those that turn and trust. They repent and believe in Jesus. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just, oh, everybody kind of gets in. It's only for those that turn and trust in Jesus. And so, friend, if you have not done that today, we'll explain that a little bit more further lately, uh, later on, but you must turn and trust in Jesus. You don't get to heaven. You're not a Christian. Your sin is not atoned for. You don't get the righteousness of Christ just because you're a kid that grows up in the South where there's churches on every street corner because your mama gets a bulletin from some church. That's not what makes you a Christian, not because you occasionally go to church, you carry a Bible around, or because you know a couple of Bible verses, or because you got some little craft from BBS from 15 years ago that you you still have in your room hanging up somewhere. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is repenting of your sin, trusting in Jesus, and putting the weight of your life in what God did for you on the cross in Christ. Taking your sin, absorbing it, and then giving you his righteousness, which is new life. So that's number one. We remember Jesus' death in our place for our sins. Secondly, we identify with Jesus in his death. We identify with Jesus in his death. This is what Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. That I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Therefore, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, he was a German, oh, if you don't know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Google Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's a German name, hard to spell, but Google will correct it for you. And, and read about him and then buy a book on his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian in the 1920s and 30s. He was a young man, a brilliant theologian, part of the German confessing church. And he was in America as a seminary professor. And in the late 20s and early 30s, when he began to see the storm clouds rising in his native Germany, realizing what Hitler was all about, before the world really understood it, Bonhoeffer decided, left the comfort of the safety of teaching in an American seminary and went back to Germany, left America, left that comfort, went back to Germany to begin an underground church so that he would hopefully stop the advance of the Third Reich. And in fact, and he has, moder- he has really uh, sort of upheaved how we view Christian ethics, he actually uh, participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler because he felt like it was the righteous thing to do. I'm not talking about Tom Cruise and Valkyrie here or whatever that movie is, although I think that might have been partially true. We're talking about something totally different. Bonhoeffer was involved about how to stop this thing, giving up safety in America to go back to Germany. He was found out and he was arrested and he stayed in a German prison up until about two weeks or three weeks before the end of World War II. He was hung three weeks or so before the end of World War II for treason against Hitler's Third Reich. And he spent several years in prison and he wrote letters from prison. And one of those letters he wrote to some friends, he said that when Christ, listen to this, because this is our point here, we identify with Jesus in his death. He said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die contrast that with the fluffy silliness of a lot of American Christianity. Come to Jesus so you can have a better life, or you can, you know, be happier, or you can, you know, have more successful business dealings. I mean, come on, we have taken the message of the reconciliation of mankind and boiled it down into leadership principles for executives in America. That is disgusting. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some things that we can learn about leadership in the Bible. I'm not saying that. The Bible is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. But when the main thing that we're marketing as Christianity is it'll improve your life here in these 70 or 80 years, we suck the power right out of the cross. When we come to Christ and we come to this meal, we are coming to a God who died and rose again for us. And there's a gravity and a seriousness about that. And so we are people that are worshiping a God who calls us to die to ourselves so that we might live to him and with him forever. So when we come to Jesus, we are identifying with his death and realizing that we are dead to this world. We are dead to the things that pulled us before we came to Christ. And we realize that we still may struggle with those things. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to remind each other that, no, 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 I am dead to that thing that was taking me that way. Now I am alive to Jesus. So when we remember this meal, we identify with Jesus in his death. Thirdly, let's keep moving. We examine our lives. This is no flippant 
cavalier, rote, traditional thing that we do. Oh, it's the first Sunday of the month. Shuffle down the aisle, grab my stuff, get the cup with the most juice in it, and go back to my seat. We, we are here to examine our lives in light of who we are claiming to be in Christ. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Decades after Jesus instituted this meal, let's go to it in 1 Corinthians 11. This would be beneficial for you to read along with me if you have a Bible. 1 Corinthians 11. You got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. This is the letter we're going to study in a couple weeks, Lord willing. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church as they are really messing up the spirit of this meal, and he's offering them stern correction. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, it's, start, it's going to get serious here. Listen to this. Let me read this slowly. Click in with me now. That was basically a repeat in a paraphrased way of what Jesus said in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And then Paul says, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let's stop here for just a second. Let me fill you in a little bit on the details of what's going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, although they were very gifted people, they were really, really uh, just absorbed with selfishness and licentiousness and all sorts of immorality. And so they were, one of the things that they were doing among, uh, amongst many other sins is that they were, they were being very, very selfish. And some of the rich Corinthians would, would, you know, eat all to themselves and not share with some of the poorer folks. And they were just really, really using this meal as a sort of party and not letting it be something that where they focused on Jesus. They're missing the entire point. And so what Paul is talking about, he's talking to Christians now, and he's saying that when you do this in an unworthy manner, you're, you're profaning the body and blood of the Lord. You're missing the point. You're trampling over through your cavalier, selfish spirit the whole meaning of this meal. Let's keep going. And then he says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks, listen to this, for anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, what does that mean? Does it mean he doesn't really understand? It could have two possible meanings here. We're not really sure. So he's saying, so anybody that takes this meal without discerning the body, that could mean either you're not being consciously aware of what Jesus did in his body being torn on the cross, or you're not consciously discerning the needs of the body of Christ symbolically around you. Either one, I think both of them apply. I'm not sure exactly what Paul meant there, but either one of them, I think, is a valid interpretation. So if you're here in your selfishness, either ignoring what Jesus did for you or ignoring the body of Christ, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen to this now, verse 30. It gets, we're turning the flame up even further. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Is anybody else just a little bit troubled by that verse? 
Okay, here's what I think is happening. And I've done a, a lot of thinking and reading and on this particular verse because we, we want to know what that's saying here. And I've read many different scholars on this thing. And here's what the vast majority of them are saying that this verse says is that God, in his providence and in his kind mercy, because some of you Corinthians are doing such a poor job of massacring this meal in your selfishness, God is interrupting your sin and killing you so that he can take you to heaven now rather than waiting for you to apostate yourself in your sin so that he had have to reject you later. So in God's mercy, he's taking people out so they don't lose it. Sila. Meditate on this. That's how serious God is about righteousness. Now, does God treat everybody that way that profanes or doesn't take this meal seriously? Well, no, evidently not, of course, because through the centuries, many people have messed this thing up. And miss the purpose of it. But this is just a reminder here that God is so serious, at least in this particular community, with this particular people, where he laid down this principle that I'm so serious about this, that some of you are sick and have died because you've messed this up, and it brought judgment on you, and in his kind mercy, he takes you out before you can mess it up any further. So we should examine ourselves when we come to this cross, when we come to this table, when we come to this bread and juice, Martin Luther, I've mentioned him several times, great hero of the Protestant Reformation, his 95 thesis that he stapled to the chapel door at Wittenberg, Germany, that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Number one on that list of 95 theses is that when our Lord and Master said repent, he willed that the entire life of a Christian should be one of repentance. And so just because we responded once years ago Christ for salvation doesn't mean that we're just carefree and we can just sort of come on down and sort of, you know, happy-go-lucky, just not even think about our life in light of the cross in this moment. Repentance is for a lifetime. Now, this brings up a question. What if I've had a bad week, Brad? Uh, Well, I know what you mean. It doesn't mean that we need to stay away from the table. But it means that we should take this moment as a church to not rush and we should think about what Jesus has done and through our repentance and confession and realignment of our lives with Christ, we bring ourselves back to where God wants us to be. And so in just a moment, at the end of this message, before we receive, we're going to take a few moments just of silence to think about what Jesus has done. And if there's anything in your life, you confess your sin, you repent to the Lord. And as Robert preached so well a couple weeks ago, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's no penitence here. There's no week's worth of hard labor that we have to do. In a moment, as we examine our lives and as the Holy Spirit brings conviction to us, we can turn and trust in Jesus and find grace. And so we need to do that. We need to examine our lives. That's number three. Let's move through these next couple quickly. We remember, number four, we remember our dependence on Christ. We remember our dependence on Christ. I think this is partially because of the anemic nature of American Christianity where we teach on all sorts of silliness, where we turn most of our sermons into self-help, and we turn you know, a lot of the time that we gather into just how to live life more strategically or pragmatically. Listen, it sort of subconsciously draws us away from 
the centrality of the cross and the centrality of what Jesus has done for us, not just for the beginning of the Christian life, but for the continuance and the growth of the Christian life. And receiving this communion meal on a regular basis teaches us, reminds us that we are completely dependent on Christ for everything. Salvation is not a one-time transaction with Jesus that then we transact and then move on to the more deep issues of life. Salvation is a one-time birth process where then we grow roots deeper down in. The Bible says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says that he holds all things together. And so this is a reminder that we live and move and have our being in Jesus. It's a reminder of our total dependency on the Lord. Number five, we remember our unity with other Christians. This is a big one, friends. We remember our unity with other Christians. Have you ever considered just how God designed us just to really, 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 really need one another? And how that cuts against the cultural ethic of rugged American individualism? I mean, come on, we are the children of people who, who rode wagons across the West and stuck stakes in the ground and carved out acreage for themselves so that they could make it on their own. There's something in the fabric of American culture that, in one sense, I guess is good for a culture because it teaches responsibility, but when it's taken too far, we, we are rugged individuals. We, we, we are united. If you are a Christian, let me put it to you this way. If you are a Christian and you have people in your family, your blood family, that are not yet Christians, and I guess all of us do, I'm sure. You are more, do you realize you are more fundamentally aligned and connected to your brother and sister in Jesus who is of a different race, of a different culture, of a different economic background than you are, than you are to your very own blood brother or sister that does not know Jesus? Chew on that for a second. You're going to be spending eternity with the one who knows Jesus if you're a Christian. This, just dwelling on this, I don't have time, this is not the issue for today, but just this thought right here, of communion, how we are knit together from every tribe, nation, and tongue, every color, black, white, brown, yellow, all of us knit together in Christ, should shatter the sinfulness of racism. And let's be honest, many of us, kind of pride ourselves on not being racist, but yet when we're with people of our own ethnic group and something comes up, the first thing we ask a lot of times is, oh, was that person this or that? Come on, that's just, that's just the seeds of racism in our heart. <laughs> just, just one little thought here. I'm, I'm venturing out here. I'm way off into a rabbit trail. But I believe, I believe a very God-honoring thing is interracial marriage in Christ. Let you wrestle with that a little bit and shift nervously in your seats. I would rather that my son and daughter marry an African-American who knows Jesus, loves them and serves them, than a white person, nay, even an Italian-American, <laughs> who doesn't know Jesus. You hear me? Chew on that for a while. 
Do you realize skin color is merely a function of how close your ancestors were to the equator? I mean, come on, sun burns a little bit. White, more north, less sun, darker, closer to the equator. Centuries of time, development, protective device for human culture. That's it. I didn't mean to get on that. We are unified with other Christians. Six, in the communion meal, we proclaim the gospel. Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We just read it. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you're doing something here. He says, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we come to this table on a monthly basis together as a church or individually throughout the other weeks as we are contemplating on the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are renewing our commitment to the truth that there is salvation in no other name except for Jesus and that Christ is the way and that collectively we together as a church are saying that Jesus is the Savior. We're collectively, as a body of Christ, doing that. You may ask, how are we doing that? Well, one of the ways, especially in the way we do church in America, is is that always in our gatherings, there are very likely people who are not yet believers. And so you may ask the question, well, can anybody just receive this meal? And the answer to that question, friends, listen to me, is no. The communion meal is for Christians only. And so if you are not yet a Christian... We would ask you to not partake of this meal. It's a family meal. Why would somebody who's not yet a Christian want to do all these things that we've talked about? Proclaim the death of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel and to symbolize their unity with other Christians. Now, I know the sensibilities of our modern American ears. We're like, oh, how dare you exclude this? How could anybody, how can you, don't even do that, Brad. Just kind of wash over it and let, let people just kind of eventually come to Jesus. Let them participate. No, 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 friends. Actually, I think the, one of the most loving things we can do for you and with you is to, of course, invite you into all of our gatherings, do life together, invite you into our homes, let you come and discover Jesus with you. But when it comes to the point of what it means to be a Christian one of the most loving things we can do for you is clearly delineate what a Christian is and what a Christian is not and what Christians do and do not do. And so if you are not a Christian, we humbly and with great respect for you and where you are and your progress and journey, ask you to not partake of this. And so that means that there might be just a little bit of an awkward moment as we all stand in just a moment and come down to receive and you stay there in your seat. Listen, don't worry about it. Let's be honest. I mean, don't invest an hour and a half or two maybe in church and, and sort of just not let the issues truly come to the surface. You're not a Christian, man. Hey, we love you. Come do life with us. But let's be honest about our spiritual state. And so we proclaim the gospel. This is something that Christians do. If you're not yet a Christian, man, we invite you to come and, 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 and kind of do life together, discover who Jesus is. If you're not a Christian, you can't be a member of this church. And we'd really ask that you not participate in this meal can you fake it yeah can you shuffle along and get caught up in the inertia of the crowd yeah but i would point you back to what i talked about when we examined our lives and partaking in this in an unworthy way you trample over the body of christ oh i beg of you not to do that you're not a believer 
Let the Holy Spirit convict you. Look, you don't need to join this church or do some prayer or take seven steps to this or that. In order to become a believer, you need to turn and trust. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. You need to forsake your old life and trust in Jesus. And you can do that even very right now, friends, right now. Right now, do it. Turn and trust in Jesus. Come to Christ. Come to this table. Place your affection in Jesus. Treasure what Christ did for you. Right now, some of you may very well be becoming a Christian. Ooh, that was bad grammar. But some of you may very well be becoming a Christian right now. And if that's you, if you're turning and trusting in Jesus, come to the table with us because you're one of us. And even in this instant, we are more connected with you than even our own family members who do not know Jesus. Finally, we end with this. Number seven, we, and oh, this is so good for my soul to be reminded of. We anticipate Jesus' return. We anticipate Jesus' return. Go back to Matthew 26, what Jesus said there in his meal with the disciples in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying there, he's pointing towards the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is what the Bible calls it in Revelation 19, that this gathering of all God's redeemed people at the end of the age when there will be this great celebration. So we are anticipating that the world will ultimately and everything in it be set right by a king who is coming back to win once and for all, finally, to set everything straight. He's won on the cross, and he will completely enact his victory once and for all when he comes back. And we long for that moment, and it gives us hope, and it lets us know that the world is not the way it should be, but Jesus is coming back. Two things here. This should transform how we view the world. We cling so tightly to these 80 years, man. Come on, we want, this, we want these few decades so bad. But J.I. Packer, I love this quote. You know what J.I. Packer said? I think it's in his book, Knowing God. He's the guy that wrote that book I gave away earlier, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He said, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people. Listen to this. And still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. So God is more interested in your eternity than in your temporal blessing. And knowing that Jesus is coming to set everything straight lifts our gaze from these 80 years to eternity. This transforms our view of suffering. Listen, if you're going through a trial right now, don't waste it, man. Don't waste your suffering in self-pity. Of course, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to alleviate that thing, which is biblical. But let that be the sovereign good kindness of God to lift your eyes from this broken world that passes away to an eternity with Jesus forever. Because if you're suffering from some physical ailment, whether it be soreness or some bone thing or just some bad hip or cancer, even if God heals you of it, which we believe he can, you're still eventually going to die. And so some of our desire for healing in our American culture is really idolatry because we're living only for these 80 years. I believe in healing. But I believe more passionately in the ultimate healing, which is eternity forever with Jesus. I've been working out at the gym on goals. No, it's been funny. I, I know. <laughs> My delivery was off on that, but I'm... 
I'm actually meaning to stay serious here, so check it back in with me if you can. I've been working out at this gym lately where there's this, um, there's this dad who brings his son. And I don't know what the diagnosis is for the son, whether he's cerebral palsy or whatever, but he's, he's it, completely bound to a wheelchair. His limbs are gnarled and kid can't do anything. I don't know what his mental state is, but his body is wrecked. And this dad, <laughs> he puts his son in these exercise machines and he applies pressure to his son to work out his muscles, strengthen his boy. And you'll be on the other side of the gym and you'll, you'll hear this groan. You'll hear this boy. He obviously doesn't have complete control of his faculties or his vocal cords. And you'll just hear him groan out. Oh! As his good and loving daddy puts weight on him to strengthen him. That's what suffering is like, friends. That's what the cross signifies. God and his kind providence is over all suffering. And we see that most clearly on the cross, where God puts weight on his son, and where he cries out, Oh! And he puts things in your life. Not so that you will run away and say, where's God? Because I haven't been healed. So that you might groan. So that you might grow. So that you might be strengthened. So that you might lift your eyes from the weight of this world. And look forward to that day when he comes again. And he sets all things right. This is what The Apostle John writes in Revelation 21, and I end with this. Speaking of this new heavens and new earth, when it all is made right. John says in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, ordained for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, or stress in marriage, or anguish in our souls over raising kids or gossip or being sinned against or cancer or sickness or soreness or old age, it'll all be gone for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
as we come in just a moment around this table, and I know the hour is late, we are anticipating the day when God come again and make all things right. Now let's pray. Now before we pray, as the band is coming, let's take a moment just in silence here to examine our lives. How does your life line up with these truths? Do you know who Jesus is? Have you trusted in him? Friends, where's your hope? Is your hope in your intelligence? Is your hope in your ability to eventually straighten yourselves out and live, start living right? Friends, if, if that's where you are and if it has become clear to you today that that is a hopeless foundation, I plead with you to turn and trust in Jesus. Jesus said to him who has ears to hear, let him come. Are you hearing this today? Are you aware of the fact that you've built your life on self and your own righteousness? If you are becoming aware of that right now, that is called conviction. That is the kind gift of the Holy Spirit who is making you aware of your need for a Savior. You don't need to have 100% knowledge or complete understanding. You need to turn from self-reliance and sin and rebellion and trust in Jesus. Do that right now, friends. Place your faith in Jesus. It's simple as saying, Lord, I, I turn. I turn from my sin. I confess my sin. I am wicked and separated from you and rebellious. I've lived life on my own. I trust in you now, Jesus. I trust that what you did on the cross is alone what can save me. And I now receive, as John says in John 1, I receive Christ. Do that right now, friends. Do that right now. Christian, have you just been run ragged? Have you had a horrible month, year, marriage, job situation? Examine your life. Examine your life in light of these truths. Confess your sins to Jesus. He is good and faithful to cleanse us again and again and again to bring triumphs of refreshing. Let's take a moment to do that. Let's just, in silence here for a few seconds, examine our lives in light of this truth. Thank you, Lord, for sweet grace. Thank you, Lord, for mercy that rains down even now. And as we come to this table, let us come with a gravity and a gladness as we remember what you did for us, Christ.